Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Nearly a week after Election Day, key races to determine control of the House, including a handful in California, remain undecided. And Republicans are pointing fingers, some at former President Donald Trump, for a red wave that did not materialize. Over the weekend, Democrats also clinched Senate control with a win in Nevada. This hour, we take a closer look at the message and impact of the midterm elections and get your takeaways. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Democrats sealed control of the Senate over the weekend when the Nevada Senate race was called for Democratic incumbent Catherine Cortez Masto. Meantime, control of the House remains unclear, with eyes on a handful of California races that are undecided. This is not where Republicans expected to be nearly a week after Election Day, with high inflation, Biden's low approval ratings, and the advantages often enjoyed by the opposition party during midterms. So for more on the latest election outcomes and their impacts, we're joined by Melanie Mason, national political correspondent for the LA Times. Melanie, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And Domenico Montanaro is with us, NPR's senior political editor and correspondent. Domenico, glad to have you as well. Hey, glad to be here. So now we know for sure, Domenico, that Democrats will control the Senate. Talk about what that means on its own, even without the House majority decided, what that means for President Biden. Well, it's a big deal for President Biden because when it comes to reshaping the federal judiciary, as he's been doing over the last uh, year plus, year or two here almost, uh, he'll can be able to continue doing that because he'll be able to get that through with just a 50-seat majority with Kamala Harris, uh, the vice president, being able to come in to break ties. So that's hugely important. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that Republicans might have tried to, you know, for show – 
passed through the House and Senate uh, that might have been more conservative that President Biden would have had to veto. Well, he can keep his cap on the veto pen because he's going to have Chuck Schumer, the Democrat from New York, who's the majority leader, really pushing back against a lot of what gets done in the House. And I think a lot of the focus is going to be on the drama in the House if Republicans do take a majority, which they're on track to do with a very slim majority, certainly smaller than they had hoped for. There's going to be a lot of drama as far as how they can legislate, if they can legislate at all, because there's a very strong conservative faction. It's going to have very steep demands of Congressman Kevin McCarthy uh, or whoever the next Republican speaker is going to be. Right. But as you say, all of those things might not see too much light or attention in the Senate as a result of the Democrat taking over. Melanie, just curious what your reaction is to the Nevada race being called for Catherine Cortez Masto? Well, first of all, I think that if anybody had on their bingo card that we would know the majority in the Senate before we knew the majority in the House, um, I think that you would probably be <laughs> should buy a lottery ticket because you have um, some pretty good foresight. I, so I do think it's it's pretty remarkable and I think says a lot about just the trajectory of this midterm overall that Democrats were able to secure their uh, majority. So far, they have not lost a single incumbent. Of course, we're still waiting to see that runoff uh, in Georgia in December. And I think in Nevada in particular, there was a sense that Senator Cortez Masto was one of the most endangered uh, Dem Democratic incumbents, particularly because Nevada had been so hard hit um, during the pandemic lockdowns with their economy, in addition to issues with inflation. And I think that there is a sense that, you know, Nevada having such a substantial number of Latino voters and there being so much angst amongst Democrats of if they were losing ground among Latinos and working class voters overall, Latino, uh, Nevada was really going to be a testing ground for that. And I still think it's way too early to sort of say definitively where the Latino vote was. And of course, there's huge variation across the map. But I think that if there was going to seriously be um, a drift among Latino voters to the right, Nevada wouldn't be the place where, where Democrats really felt it the most. And clearly that wasn't the case. Yeah, that wasn't the case. So, Domenico, I'm curious what impact you think it will have on the Georgia Senate runoff set for December now that it's not completely dependent on Raphael Warnock winning the Georgia runoff for Democrats to have control of the Senate. Yeah, but expanding a majority in the Senate for Democrats or keeping it very close for Republicans is hugely important. I mean, remember all of that legislation that Democrats tried to get passed uh, that went nowhere because they couldn't get 50 you know, 51 votes or 50 votes uh, because of uh, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia or Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. Now, they're probably not going to be able to get uh, much passed considering the House will likely be in Republican hands. Uh, but having that majority is important, not to mention being able to fight for another cycle because the 2024 cycle doesn't look it very good for Democrats, just the landscape for where it starts from. There are a lot more conservative states than where these are currently. So that makes it a little harder and they want to have as many uh, numbers as they possibly can to be able to defend that. And I would say one thing about the incumbents not losing. If Raphael Warnock is able to pull it off, uh, the Democratic incumbent in Georgia, it would be the first time since the direct election of senators in 1914 that no, Dem that no incumbent, Republican or Democrat, has lost in a general election. Just fascinating. It is fascinating. And I guess, what do you owe it to, Domenico Montanaro? I know that you're looking at the data as they roll in. What is the picture that is emerging from it as a result in terms of what the message and impact of these midterms are? 
Yeah, you know, it's tough to say with incumbents. I mean, I think that there's a difference in polling a lot that we see from people saying uh, that they like their personal, you know, they like their congressperson, they like their senator, but they don't like Washington. You know, the parties have such high unfavorable ratings, but partisan identification, if you've already voted for somebody, you're more likely to vote for them again. Uh, so I think we're seeing a lot of that in a very strong way uh, take place. As far as these elections go, clearly what happened, we've been seeing this cross current during the election of inflation versus abortion rights, which would weigh out. And I think both of them sort of uh, played in this election, but clearly abortion rights and this message that I think a lot of uh, Democrats, uh, independents, and some on the center right were sending is they don't want extremes. Election deniers did pretty terribly in competitive seats and in competitive races. People who modeled themselves after Trump, people Trump endorsed, all really didn't do very well at all. And that's a big deal for Trump's brand, especially as he's talking about potentially uh, announcing a bid for president uh, to run for real, to run again, not for re-election, but for, to run for a second time tomorrow night to make that kind of announcement. Right. Well, and we will definitely dig into that in a moment. But just staying with the House for a moment, Melanie Mason, first, can you just remind us, as you were saying, it's it's pretty shocking that the majority in the House is still undecided. And maybe for some, even that the outcome of several California races will be determining factors. Can you just give us a quick reminder of where those are and which ones you still see as a toss up in California? Sure. So we have several California races that have yet to be called. And in some ways, this should not be that should not be a surprise to us, because anybody who recalls, uh, say, the uh, midterm election of 2018 remembers that it takes uh, weeks sometimes to find out how these races play out. And in close races, what looks to be the trend in election night ends up being uh, the reverse. And in fact, uh, California 22 is a race that I really have in mind with that. So that's Congressman David Valadeo. He represents a Central Valley district that has a huge Democratic uh, registration advantage, but he has been a kind of more moderate Republican. Uh, he actually voted uh, to impeach Donald Trump, um, and he's been able to hang on in this Democratic district, except in 2018, where the blue wave actually took him out after weeks of vote counting. He won his seat back in 2020, and now, once again, we see the situation where he is leading right now uh, in the vote count against uh, Democrat Rudy Salas, a state assembly member. Uh, but there's still a lot of vote left to be counted. And so I think that that is one of those races where uh, the prognosticators or even the, the networks that are trying to call um, both the races themselves and the overall uh, control of the House are just waiting to see because we've all kind of been burned by the California count before. Yeah. And just as an update, I understand about 60 percent of the vote has been tallied in the state of California. But uh, we have a little more time, I think, until tomorrow to have ballots arrive and be counted. And so it will take it will definitely take some time. Melanie, I asked Domenico what he attributed the the way the midterm elections have been playing out in Congress with the Senate and the House, what he attributes that to, since it certainly wasn't the red wave that was being predicted ahead of last Tuesday. So what do you think drove this result? Well, I absolutely agree on, in, in his sort of um, Domenico's imagery about cross currents. I've been thinking of this as kind of a tug of war, right? You have sort of political gravity on one side, and uh, we've been saying this for uh, for uh, two years now, right? If you've got the historical precedent stacking up against the party in power, and you have the economy, particularly inflation, where it is, and then President Biden's approval ratings. I mean, that really, I think, was the thing that made Democrats the most nervous. They've been stuck in the low 40s um, and really have not been able to break past. Then that 
that should spell out bad news for the Democrats. But there always was this sense. And I think that the Dobbs decision that overturned abortion rights uh, in June um, crystallized that. But I think it was is part of a larger piece, which is that things felt very unsettled. There was a sense between, I mean, remember, this is an election cycle that started with the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Um, we have had things such as the attack on Paul Pelosi um, in, in the Speaker Pelosi's home in San Francisco just a few weeks ago. And I think that there was always this sense of the electorate of feeling like things were, were just a little frazzled, unsettled. And that, I think, cut against this, this typical po uh, political laws of gravity. And what that meant is that this race, which typically is a referendum on the president and his party, became a choice. And that's where you saw the effect of Trump and Trumpism, the uh, sense that there was maybe a element of extremism in the Republican Party that was the dominant strain. And I think that that gave a lot of voters pause. I mean, I think that the strongest indicator of that is look at where independent voters were. I mean, independent mm -hmm. voters almost typically are the type that swing from election to election um, and sort of indicate where um, sort of how things are going to go for the party in power. And for example, in 2018, they swung hard against Republicans. Therefore, you had the blue wave um, in 2014. And in 2010, it was the opposite against Democrats. Um, and and in this case, they actually slightly, according to exit polls, went for the Democrats. And so that's a sense where you have these voters who tend to be um, pretty dissatisfied with the party in power and what they're seeing, even still kind of hedging a little bit and saying, I may not be thrilled with the folks in power right now, but I'm also not happy with what the folks seeking power uh, are, tr are selling me. Domenico, there was some question as to whether or not more younger voters and women turned out as a result of Dobbs and some other issues. What are the data that you're looking at telling you about that right now? It's kind of mixed, frankly, on younger voters. I think that the uh, the the the, uh, the water level sort of rose for all groups across the board. And uh, there was a preliminary estimate done by Tufts University, uh, which studies younger voters, and found that they would be have turned out at likely a 27 percent turnout rate. In other words, 27 percent of voters 18 to 29 would have cast their ballots of registered voters 18 to 29. That would be uh, pretty good by their standing because it would be uh, second uh, in the last 30 years only to 2018 when it was 28 percent. Now, you know, in context, I mean, that because the, the level rose so much, they were still only about 12% of the electorate, which is about on average for what they've done in the last several midterm election cycles. And when you look at the margin from 2018 to 2022, they actually voted in a, a slightly narrower margin for Democrats than they had back then. And I went and sort of dug in on some of the key counties where you might find younger voters making a difference. Wisconsin, for example, Dane County, where the university is, Penn State's yeah, we'll hear more about how you dug in after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tomorrow, we'll be talking to poet and author Ross Gay about his new collection of essays called Inciting Joy, where Gay contemplates the deeper meaning behind the feeling of joy, how to look for it, and even how to look for it when the future looks dark and uncertain. Today, we are analyzing the results of the midterm elections with Domenico Montanaro, NPR's senior political editor and correspondent, and Melanie Mason, national political correspondent for the LA Times. And with you, our listeners, if you want to share your questions for our guests, your biggest takeaways from the midterm elections, or what lessons you think Democrats or Democratic leaders should learn from the results, or what Republicans should learn from the results as well that are still rolling in, but clarifying as we go, email forum with your thoughts or questions at forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. We were talking about younger voters just before the break, Domenico, and this listener writes, did we see more first-time voters in these elections? I'm always surprised how few people vote. You were mentioning Wisconsin uh, as well. There was some talk that there there were tremendously large numbers of young voters. How did that play out? Was that true? Was that an exception? Yeah, and you can slice this in a lot of different ways. I mean, I was getting to Wisconsin, the county there that's pretty key when you look at younger voters is Dane County, which is the county where the University of Wisconsin is. You know, overall, there were more voters who turned out, but actually at a smaller percentage, and they voted in a a slightly narrower margin for the Democrat. Also, in in 2018, in uh, the county where Penn State is, they voted in in bigger numbers uh, for the Democrat in 2018. That wasn't really even the very competitive race. Uh, So, you know, it it cuts a couple different ways. And there are a lot of different groups who are trying to take a lot of credit for what happens here. And especially Democrats have a pretty big coalition. You know, white women with college degrees in particular have been very fired up during this election. Uh, Latinos, as was mentioned earlier, you know, it's mixed, right? I mean, you don't see, you know, Latinos in South Florida are far different than Latinos in South Texas and Arizona and Nevada, very different types of voters. We didn't see a huge slip in those places uh, for Democrats in the in the ways that you would that you might think in Miami-Dade County, where Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, did very well. They actually had a lot fewer people turn out, so you kind of wonder if it was just Republican voters rather than you know Latinos in South Florida who suddenly made a huge shift toward Republicans. Hmm. It sounds like there are a lot of lessons for both Democrats and Republicans in what you are saying. But I am really curious about how Republicans are reacting to this. Melanie Mason, we're hearing a lot about some real fractures (laughs) coming, becoming more pronounced in the Republican Party, people pointing fingers at each other, whether questions about whether the uh, power of Donald Trump over the party is waning. Can you talk a little bit about the effect that these midterms are having on Republicans right now? Well, I think the recriminations are flying uh, fast and furious. I think part of it is just because of the gulf from what their expectations were. I mean, we were hearing chatter about a red tsunami, um, and clearly that was it, it was not that. 
And I do think it was interesting that immediately after we started seeing the election results, you started seeing much more pointed commentary about President Trump or former President Trump from some of the conservative media outlets that have been very aligned with him. Um, the New York Post, which is, of course, his favorite tabloid of New York City, um, also a property owned by Rupert Murdoch, um, had the Trumpy Dumpty uh, uh, cover, in addition to a cover showing Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida saying de future. Um, and if you don't think that that didn't get under uh, Trump's skin, um, I don't think you've been paying attention to politics very much in the last couple of years. Now, I think what is interesting is that there has been some more frank discussion about the fact that Trump's influence in the party has led to consecutive years of losses. They lost the uh, House in 2018, then they lose the White House in 2020, and now we see what happened in 2022. But we've been here before. We have seen at points in time uh, sort of the elites, party leaders in Republican Party uh, personalities saying maybe it's time for us to break away from President Trump. And President Trump, um, former President Trump has other ideas. And more importantly, his supporters, the grassroots base has other ideas. And I think that until we see some actual evidence that grassroots supporters are willing to consider uh, somebody like a Governor DeSantis or somebody like a Governor Brian Kemp or the various other names that we've been hearing, I think it's a little premature to say that this was the moment that the Republican Party was willing to break uh, with Trump. We've, of course, seen some early polls that show that Governor DeSantis um, might be might be a favorite. But um, again, there has been history is littered, littered with examples of um, people who caught fire with presidential buds about two years out from a presidential race and um, ended up fizzling out pretty early. So I think, again, a lot of caveats abound when we start to see those numbers. Domenico, what do you think? Melanie's right. We have heard this song before from Republicans mm -hmm. wanting to distance themselves from Trump after some pretty massive things that happened January 6th, for example, and that ended up not going anywhere. Uh, Democrats actually outperformed at the local level as well. I think you've pointed out, too, with regard to state houses and governorships and so on. Um, do you think that this is the moment they break? You know, I, I'm skeptical uh, for, personally, and I, and I think that we've seen more Republican senators and the like speak out. But, you know, this is really about the voters. And frankly, Trump was able to get Republican candidates through primaries. Clearly, his vote mattered there. Now, are they going to take into account the fact that, you know, the the electability argument, which we've seen sometimes in presidential races? Maybe. But I would say we have to see consistently a whole lot more polling that shows Ron DeSantis leading uh, Trump in key places. There was one today from the Texas Republican Party uh, that released a poll showing DeSantis up 11 points uh, in Texas among Texas Republicans. Now, I'm not somebody who necessarily thinks we should pay attention to horse race polls, but I know that the candidates do. And when they see consistently, when Trump sees consistently, if that happens over and over and over and over again, there will be more of a groundswell among those Republicans to say, you know, maybe go with DeSantis if that's the case. But I think it's going to be difficult for Ron DeSantis, who's only 44 years old, to, to, to sort of walk this line to, you know, to go against Trump. And I think he would only do it if he kind of was almost guaranteed that he was going to get the nomination. Well, Melanie, every election denier who sought to become a, a top election official, secretary of state in, in critical battleground states, they've they've lost. So at the very least, does it mean that we're less likely to experience a constitutional crisis in 2024? 
Well, I do think that we saw from the voters that they, uh, at least in the general electorate, they are not interested in relitigating uh, the 2020 election and for propagating untrue things about the 2020 uh, presidential election, particularly the idea, the unproven idea, false idea, that there was voter fraud. And I think another thing that's worth saying is not only did these candidates lose, but what did they do after they lost? Uh, you know, some pretty high profile ones conceded. Look at um, uh, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. It took him a few days, but this is somebody who was uh, really just a, a real um, adamant supporter of this of, uh, Trump's big lie about 2020. Um, and he conceded to Democrat Josh Shapiro um, that, you know, that he lost the election. And I think that that at the very least shows that there is um, there's a return to the norms of that's what you do when elections happen and you lose. You concede the race. And it does feel like this um, this refusal to accept the results feels almost very specific to Trump. And I think that was a thing that we were watching very closely was not only if election denialism would be a winning platform in 2022, but if that was not the case, if there was going to be a slew of lawsuits or even violence um, if people did not accept the results. And so far, that has not been what we've seen. And I think that that's just unabashedly a good thing for democracy to not see violence after elections. Right. Well, we're talking with Melanie Mason, national political correspondent for the LA Times, and Domenico Montanaro, NPR senior political editor and correspondent. And we're talking with you, our listeners. Lots of online comments coming in. If you want to share your questions or comments, you can by posting them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, emailing forum at kqed.org, or by calling 866-733-6786. What are your questions about, your takeaways from the midterm elections? What lessons do you think the parties should learn from it? What would you like to see Congress do in the next two years? Viola writes, I am very excited about the results so far and that the Democrats have mobilized more of the young voters, although the abortion ruling really did them a favor. However, a group of voters and their very different interests, Democrats never seem to focus on, are rural voters. If the Democratic Party could do better there, these tiny margins we see today could be larger and more dependable. Another listener, Noel, tweets, I'm concerned a Republican Congress will have hearings about Hunter Biden's laptop, try to impeach cabinet members or the president. With a Republican House, will Congress be able to pass national abortion rights legislation? Domenico, I was hearing your point earlier about whether or not the base, the voters, the electorate really are going to rally behind someone other than Donald Trump. And certainly the congressional races that have been called show that a lot of people who are very closely aligned with the president are still popular among the electorate. We saw Noel's tweet there about concerns about things like attempts to impeach President Biden and so on and other sort of potential shenanigans. Can you tell me what you see happening if the House is, in fact, able to have a Republican majority, as it sounds like you're predicting, will be the ultimate outcome? Uh, name the shenanigans, you're going to see the shenanigans. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be an investigation palooza uh, among Republicans on the right who win these chairmanships uh, because they've really been pent up uh, with what they see as, uh, you know, not digging in more on, on President Biden, his son Hunter, and everything else that you watch on Fox News uh, that comes through into their living rooms. So I think we're going to see all of that. It's going to be 
um, you know, uh, headline grabbing in a lot of cases, extreme in other cases. Uh, remember, there are still a lot of people who are election deniers who are going to be serving in Congress. Uh, yes. It's a pretty hard right faction of, of people there. You know, I think the, the difference with Democrats being able to have the Senate is that, you know, Democrats now control the floor. So any of the stuff that came, that would have come out of the House, like an impeachment of President Biden, uh, they're not going to control the floor, Republicans, to be able to bring that to the floor, although I highly doubt that Mitch McConnell would ever do something like that anyway. Well, talk about the discussions that are happening right now about trying to deal with the debt ceiling during the lame duck period. Can you share a little bit about how those discussions, what they're pointing to with regard to what uh, Democrats will do right now is when they do control both chambers? Well, I know some Democrats have been talking about wanting to extend the debt ceiling permanently and get rid of it as an idea because we saw back in 2011, you know, this was a huge uh, piece of why John Boehner as Republican speaker was essentially ousted as speaker then because he was working with President Obama across the aisle to try to, uh, you know, raise the debt ceiling. And it's, it's something that has been done routinely over and over again through the years. And, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a, a bit of a groundswell among some Democrats to say that they don't want that kind of thing to continue to be a problem with a new Republican House uh, next year. Now, Democratic leadership has not exactly uh, said that they're going to bring something like that to the floor just yet. So it's going to be something I think we're going to need to report a little bit more on to see what happens there. And I wonder if we're going to see anything on the Electoral Count Act, uh, the clarifying of the language within that, which has been something that a lot of moderate Republicans have been on board with. Uh, you know, not a lot of stuff that we're going to see uh, in a pretty sweeping way, but a few minor and important things like that. Yes. So I'm curious, Melanie Mason, what you think that means. So should Republicans pull out a majority in the House? Certainly California's Kevin McCarthy is trying to rally support behind his bid to be speaker. And can you just give us a sense of what you think he faces as a result of a lot of members of the House being very Trump aligned um, and also him having a very slim majority to work with, which doesn't that potentially mean that the the more extreme factions will have more sway? It means that every single member of his conference at some point will have more sway if he only has a three uh, seat uh, majority. I mean, it is, you know, uh, Congressman McCarthy has wanted to be speaker for a very long time. It looks like he is on track to be that, but it is a speakership that is going to be a lot of headaches when you have a conference as small as this is. And you're right. I think that the most conservative faction of the uh, um, of the House really wants to flex their muscle. Remember that they were actually the faction that denied him the speakership uh, once before after Boehner um, stepped down. And he since then worked assiduously to um, ally himself. People like Jim Jordan of Ohio, for example, that could have been somebody who could be potentially a rival for the speakership. Instead, he sort of, um, you know, is working with Jordan. Jordan will likely be the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee should the Republicans uh, secure the majority. Uh, so I do think that he has tried very hard to um, sort of bring that right flank into the fold. 
but you know, it could be a very long two years um, of him trying to wrangle um, a lot of different ideologies. It is a more conservative caucus um, than it had been because there were a lot of Trump supporters that got elected. Um, but there are also going to be some people look at the new members of Congress that are coming from New York, for example, where Republicans did pick up um, seats from Democrats. They are going to be holding seats that are then uh, Biden seats that Biden won in 2020. And I think that that's going to affect their calculus of how they're going to want to vote considering their constituents back home. So he's going to have to take all of that into account. And he just has very, very little room to maneuver if he only has a handful of members giving him that cushion. Well, this is her tweets on social media. The MAGA Republicans are blaming everyone and everything from Mitch McConnell to invisible voters. Not many are actually taking responsibility for the losses or actually blaming Trump. Nothing has changed from 2020. That's in this listener's view. I, I guess I'm <clears throat> curious if you you mentioned earlier, Domenico Montanaro, that Trump has teased an announcement uh, that he is going to run for president as early as tomorrow, what impact do you think that is going to have on this uh, on this Republican on these Republican lawmakers who, as Melanie described earlier, have finger pointing recriminations flying fast and furious among them? I mean, I think the announcement, first of all, if it does come tomorrow night, um, it is it comes from a place of weakness from Trump. You know, his his brand uh, has been tarnished by the January 6th committee even further than it already had been. We've had majorities of people saying for, you know, five, six years that they have an unfavorable opinion or disapprove of the job he's done. He lost by 3 million votes in the popular vote in 2016. He lost by 7 million votes in the popular vote in 2020. He's now lost, uh, you know, if you were to think about this election as a loss for some of his candidates, you know, three straight elections uh, where 2018 Democrats took back the House, 2020 Biden won, and now this election where Republicans really underperformed in the House. So at some point, <laughs> you would expect people to sort of look inward and say, OK, maybe things need to change. But I think indicative of how that might not play out is Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri, for example, tweeted that, uh, you know, the old party is dead. We need uh, need to build a new party and then promptly deleted it. So <laughs> that kind of reminds me of people like Kevin McCarthy coming out and criticizing Trump after January 6th and then uh, abruptly uh, doing an about face and, you know, being in a thumbs up photo with him at Mar-a-Lago, uh, Trump's Florida home. So I I, I, that's where I start from as far as a skeptical uh, perspective on this. But I think Trump is doing this because he wants to grab the attention. He wants to clear the Republican field. He doesn't want to give any oxygen to somebody like a Ron DeSantis and start to pressure people in the party to get on board a Trump 2024 reelect. And we're coming up on a break, Molly Mason, but do you have any thoughts to add on this? There are some who predict this will tear the, uh, the Republican Party apart between Trump and a DeSantis and maybe even a Pence. My only quick observation is I did talk to a couple of very diehard uh, Trump supporters over the weekend to sort of gauge if they were at all willing to uh, move over to DeSantis. They said that they were still sticking with Trump, but they didn't like that he was going after DeSantis. They kind of see DeSantis as the future after Trump, and so they don't want to see a food fight. I think that's worth noting as we try to understand the dynamics. Interesting. Listeners, what is your takeaway from the election? What are your questions about what's happening as a result of the midterms and how they are playing out? Email forum 
kqed.org. Call us at 866-733-6786 or post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. More forum after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at the midterm elections and what the next two years look like now that we know that Democrats have held the Senate and we face the possibility of a Republican-controlled House, so a split Congress, though that is still not decided. We're talking with Melanie Mason, national political correspondent for the LA Times, and Domenico Montanaro, NPR senior political editor and correspondent. And with you, our listeners, let me go to Peter in Florida. Hi, Peter. Hi, Florida. Don't generalize about us. 10th Congressional District, western part of uh, Orlando, Maxwell Frost. We know who he is. 25 years old, the youngest you can be to be a representative. Uh, He's a person of color and uh, ran and won in Central Florida. So we're not all uh, DeSantis people here. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Well, Peter. So ask your so so do your guests are you aware of him I mean he's certainly someone to pay attention to he's not part of a trend young guy mm. Maxwell Frost Domenico yeah first Gen Z candidate yeah yeah first Gen Z candidate to uh, make it to Congress he's 25 years old he's uh, you know, that's the limit that's the uh, the floor <laughs> that you can be uh, to be in Congress he couldn't be a senator right now but uh, can be from Florida you know look Florida is a very diverse state there are a lot of different types of people within Florida a lot of different types of districts obviously you know DeSantis won by a wide margin but still it, you know, there were 40-some percent of people who voted for the Democrat there. So you're likely to have that across the state uh, in various districts where you should have uh, some Democrats, even some progressives, win, although the districts in Florida were so heavily gerrymandered that they give a tremendous advantage to Republicans. In fact, I'd say if, if Florida and New York State um, you know, if the if the districts in New York had been upheld and Florida uh, wasn't so heavily gerrymandered, we might be talking right now about Democrats holding the majority. Yes, yes, there are yeah a lot of analyses like that, especially around gerrymandering, redistricting, and so on, about how this could have played out differently. We're getting a few comments here about 
polls uh, and polling. And I'm going to read a couple to you now. Matt writes, are journalists overly focused on the horse race aspects of pre-election polling rather than on more substantive matters? It seems like the Republican pollsters played the press by flooding the zone with their late partisan polls, leading to headlines like the New York Times the day before the election, that GOP shows optimism as Democrats brace for losses, and that for Biden, quote, Mm -hmm. parties outlook bleak. Why not focus instead on how deeply women were motivated leading up to the election and how Republicans were trying to stoke fear of crime and rely on donations from billionaires to flood the airwaves? Another listener writes, given that Republicans predicted a red wave and mainstream media was predicting that as well, is this further proof that polling is not accurate? What should we be looking at if we want a sense of how elections are trending? Melanie, how do you think the polling played out? How do you think pollsters did uh, leading up to the midterms? And your thoughts on these these listeners' questions and analyses of polling? I mean, I think that these are all good qu- comments and questions. And I think that as we try to, again, sort of now take a step back and understand sort of what some of these indicators were in the run-up to the election, a lot of the national or nonpartisan polls um, were actually quite spot on. I mean, they had pointed to a neck-and-neck race um, uh, for the House and for the Senate. It was a generic ballot that was pretty much tied, and that's basically where we are. Now, there was a flood of partisan polls that I think um, if you were paying attention to every single poll that came out or if you were looking at um, the aggregations that perhaps you were getting a sense of momentum. But, you know, in fairness to some of the pollsters who have been at this for a long time, they actually were remarkably accurate. I think that one area where um, I think that that I personally in reading the polls maybe came away with conclusions that weren't quite right is when you were looking at sort of the cross tabs, looking at the subgroups within it. And so you would see some polls, for example, that would point to a, a big swing in suburban women or women um, without a party preference, for example. And you would think, wow, I mean, that would be really substantial given how important these voters were in 2018. Um, but of course, when you're looking at these subgroups, that is when you are looking at a, a smaller and smaller sample. That's a wider margin of error. So certainly something that I'm going to be um, taking away going forward. Um, I also think that in in truth, there's a sense of um, people being burned sometimes by polls in the past. I mean, look at what we saw both in 2020 and 2016. Polls did underestimate support for President Trump. There clearly was a problem with trying to capture the Trump voter. And perhaps that led some people to, to question, even if the polls were showing better indicators for Democrats, um, you know, maybe if those polls were still not not missing that sort of Trump aligned vote. Um, and the last thing I'll say, just, you know, to defend um, some of the mainstream media, or at least um, our coverage, is I think that we tried really hard to get at some of these nuances, look at the issues, and look at the fact that voters were not one-dimensional, right? They weren't just voting on issue A or issue B. We went out, we talked to voters who would talk about how, yes, they were feeling frustrated by high gas prices, but they also were really distressed by what they saw on January 6th. And I think that, the, at least for me personally, what was trying to guide my coverage was the sense that, like, Voters are complex people. We're all complex people. We can all hold multiple thoughts in our head at the same time. And the question is, is when you are balancing all of these things, what was the thing that won out in the ballot box? Um, and quite frankly, that wasn't something we were going to know until we saw the results. Well, Domenico, what's your advice on how listeners should should look at and interpret polls and whether or not they have improved their ability to to reflect a changing electorate? 
Well, first of all, as far as how the media, uh, you know, interpreted these things, sometimes people throw out the media with a broad brush. And I would say, like various voter groups, the media is not a monolith, you know. And, I, you know, I really, really, really tried to put a lot of caveats in uh, the stories that I wrote about polling. Uh, you know, I helped, you know, uh, basically analyze the polls that we conduct with right. Marist. And, you know, I, the, the Senate polling, for the most part, was, I mean, dead on, right? But... I, I don't think that the polls are everything, and I continuously say this: that we we you, know, you look at it, but it's but it's just one factor. You know, I, I think that we have to go out, we have to report, we have to talk to people still. But again, the polls were actually pretty spot on in this election. It just what happened in the last two weeks, I think, is that everybody becomes an expert, everybody decides to run with what they're seeing, and I think some of those headlines that the that one. Uh, um, person who tweeted in about or commented about, you know, there were some bad headlines, I would say, and that these these news organizations have to remember that that there are – we don't know what the shape of the electorate is going to be. We don't know who's going to show up exactly on election day or with those ballots. You can make a pretty good guess. You can have a sense of which direction things are going. But remember, you know, trends are what's most important. Polls have margins of error. And I think those are things that as consumers of that information, we need to look at. I mean, things like the needles that these you know sites continue to put up, I just abhor them. I think that they're the worst thing you can do because they're a probability needle. It has nothing to do with, you know, whether something is actually going to happen or not. So it's just there's a lot of gimmicks. There's a lot of stuff to weed through. There are a lot of people who are who are talking about stuff that, you know, they just are doing in a superficial way. And I think polling is one thing to look at. I think horse race polling, for the most part, when it came to these Senate races, I paid zero attention to. I talked to a lot of Republican strategists and Democratic strategists, people who run their campaigns, people who conduct their polling. Ohio is a great example. You know, Tim Ryan was up by like nine points in the summer. Uh, and every Democratic strategist was telling me, don't pay any attention to that. We expect it totally to close and the Republicans probably going to win. And that's exactly what happened. And I can I just go ahead, to, Melanie, to jump, in, to jump in for a second to sort of um, uh, agree with that and also note that um, in the closing weeks of the election, um, I'm sure Domenico heard the same thing. Democrats that I were talking to, they were also bracing for a red wave. So this wasn't just sort of a, um, I think the media sort of swallowing hook, line and sinker, what Republicans were spinning them. There was definitely a sense among the Democratic campaigns that I was talking to that they were also bracing for this, um, this really bad night. And I think that that was because you did see in these polls that, you know, voter after voter was saying that the economy um, inflation was the thing that was top of mind. And then, you you know, people would give Republicans an edge on the economy and inflation. Uh, but one thing that I had also kept in mind and, and why I think that Domenico has a great point that polls are one piece of uh, one data point that shouldn't be the whole thing. So I remember talking to um, Sarah Longwell, who is a um, uh, sort of never Trump Republican who runs a lot of focus groups, who would say that when she would talk to people in focus groups, you'd go around the room and ask, what's the first thing on your mind, your top thing on your mind? And everyone would say the economy, the economy, the economy. Mm. But then when you started talking to people about abortion, that was the issue that people actually got animated <laughs> about. And I think that difference is so hard to capture in a poll, which is why they are useful, but they can't be the only indicator that you're looking at. Yeah, like well, we need like rank choice for issue uh, <laughs> issue uh, questions and polls. I also think that when it comes to 
independence. That's one thing that Democrats were most surprised by themselves, that independence actually broke for them in this election when they were saying that inflation was their top voting issue. But, you know, again, abortion rights showed up big time in these polls. You know, Pennsylvania was the top issue, according to the exit polls. Uh, in Arizona, 40 percent of voters said that they were angry about the road decision. So, you know, that kind of cross current really we see here. It's an asterisk that really pushed back against history. Yeah. Well, Anita writes, how do you think the January 6th hearings impacted the results? So do you think that fears about our democracy and our democracy losing its robustness played uh, with the electorate as well? At least that's what Biden was banking on. Um, I do think that the preserving democracy as an issue uh, was a major piece of this election. And I mean that by the election denialism that was creeping up and very you – know, and this lurch toward conspiracy on a lot of uh, Republicans' part, Republican voters' part, the distrust of good, solid, real, scientific, uh, verified information because it didn't confirm with their previously held beliefs. And that's something that we saw center-right voters, independents and Democrats kind of joined together as a coalition to say, you know, don't want these kinds of extremes. We're analyzing the midterm election results as a result of the latest developments that we've had just in this last six days, just in these last six days or so with Domenico Montanaro and Melanie Mason. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, this sister wants to know, given how close some of these remaining races are, especially in California, do you think, do the guests think this will moderate the winners? Or will the winners believe that eking out a win means that they have a mandate? Is the closeness um, suggesting that voters want people to moderate, the parties to moderate? What do you think, Melanie? I think that that's a great question. And at least here in California, there are two sort of distinct paths that that jump to mind. The first is um, Congressman David Valadeo of Central Valley, who we'd mentioned earlier. And he was somebody who has been in perpetually close races and has framed himself as a moderate within the Republican caucus. I mean, he um, supports immigration reform. He supports uh, yeah dreamers. Um, and of course, he had, he had voted for impeachment. Um, and so I do think that this is somebody who is reading his district and realizing that if he was going to be part of that far right flank, that there is just he would not win in a district that was calling for moderation. I think a, a distinction, somebody I will be watching for if he ends up uh, indeed winning the race, which he looks like he's on track to do. This is Congressman Mike Garcia down here in northern Los Angeles County. This is somebody who won uh, his race in 2020 by 333 votes. And just a couple of weeks later, he was one of the 147 House Republicans who voted to overturn the election results. And I remember at the time thinking, that's an interesting move for somebody who just barely squeaked out an election. Um, now, that issue didn't end up being something that his opponent, Christy Smith, the Democrat, ended up focusing on very much. And Garcia ended up sort of uh, in his uh, in his actions in Congress subsequently and also in his ads, really kind of taking more of a center right, focusing more on fiscal issues and veterans issues, which is key in this sort of very military centric district. So perhaps he will have then taken those cues further if he indeed ends up going on to win this race. Um, but it did strike me that, you know, this is somebody who really, really barely won in 2020 and then went on and did um, took a vote that I certainly don't think people would consider um, to be centrist or moderate in that January 6th vote. 
Yeah, and I well, think that there are yeah, actually ahead, uh, there were two congressional districts that I think felt were really interesting uh, on the West Coast. Um, I mean, aside from the ones I'm still watching in California, there's 12 races still undecided in California. Three of them that Republicans lead in, but uh, where their uh, Democratic uh, districts where Biden would have won uh, after redistricting. So, lot to watch in California still. But in Washington's third congressional district, you know, Jamie Herrera Butler was the congresswoman there. She voted for Trump's impeachment. She was ousted in a Republican primary. And the irony is here that a Democrat wound up winning that seat. And I think that's going to be one where a lot of people are going to draw this straight line between not wanting these extremist candidates uh, and having candidates who can win in those districts. Uh, Another one for Democrats, you know, Oregon's 5th Congressional District, uh, Kurt Schrader had been the longtime Democratic congressman there, seven seven terms. He's a centrist Democrat. He wound up being ousted in the Democratic pri- in the Democratic primary by a progressive candidate after redistricting made it a little more Democratic. Well, that candidate, that uh, uh, progressive candidate, wound up losing uh, as well. So you know, some 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 most of the message here is for Republicans and extreme candidates, but there are little inklings of it as well uh, for Democrats in potential future elections. Hmm. Well, Ron writes, I can't help thinking that Trump's main motivation for running, let alone being elected, is that he thinks he can thus avoid being indicted. Thoughts from your guests. And then Zoe writes, is there anyone in the Republican Party or a Republican group who can discourage Trump from running again? What do you think really quick, Domenico? I think Trump is going to, if he runs again, he's going to run again because he doesn't want to be seen as a loser. Plain and simple, it's about legacy. Do you think an indictment, Melanie, would actually rally people behind Trump? Because there have been people who've been saying, oh, my God, that would be so just so unprecedented and over the top. I mean, we, we certainly saw that uh, back in the summer when the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago, right? I mean, that was a time where uh, all of a sudden you saw Fox News primetime, the sort of conservative media apparatus, again, sort of rallied to the president's cause that this was such an overreach by the federal yeah. government. So I do think he does have um, in the sort of looming specter of all of these legal troubles, whether it's in Georgia or in New York or out of Washington, the sense that he can always say that he's being picked on by Democrats that are running the government and in, in the various these various factions and um, and that is a way to rally the Republican base. So that is something that he has in his his back pocket, even though it's not great to have all of these investigations and legal troubles looming over him. Well, the listener writes lots of comments today. The listener writes, why would you assume that inflation would cut against Democrats? Inflation is global right now, and Democrats have been way more competent and serious in government in recent years. And for a really long time, Democrats have been better for ordinary people in the economy. A lot of us voted for Democrats because of the economy. So, uh, Melanie, Domenico, I've been asking listeners what they think Democrats or Democratic leaders should learn from these results and what they think Republican leaders should learn from these midterm results. So tell me in our last uh, minute and a half what you think, Domenico, first, what do you think the takeaway should be for these parties? Again, I think that the extremism uh, is something that they, that that people just generally don't want. Voters in the middle uh, just saying that that goes too far, and I think that that's a message for either party to never declare that they have a mandate from voters when these elections are this close. What about you, Melanie? Well, I would just say that um, Democrats, while they are certainly breathing a sigh of relief, I mean, I think they should keep in mind that you know 
three quarters of this country say that the country is uh, is on the wrong track. And now people may have different reasons for that, and some may blame Republicans, some may blame Democrats. But if you are still the party that holds the White House and that holds one of two chambers of com Congress, you have to think about ways to address the fact that there is an electorate that's very dissatisfied out there. They may not like extremism, but they are also frustrated, and it's going to be incumbent on Democrats um, and Republicans to figure out how to address that. Well, Amy writes, if the Democrats win a majority in Congress, my greatest wish is they take immediate action on the following. First, end the filibuster. Second, work to overturn Citizens United. We have to get money out of the elections. It is such a waste of time, energy, and money. And third, begin work to end the Electoral College. I was reminded this morning that Hillary Clinton actually won the popular vote by more than three million voters. Our representative democracy should be one vote for each person. Whew, we'll see how much... Uh, Congress and the president will be able to get done in the next two years. But Domenico Montanaro, thanks so much for sharing your insights today. Oh, so glad to be here. Thank you. Domenico, NPR senior political editor and correspondent. Melanie Mason, also so appreciate having your insights as well. Happy to be here. Melanie Mason, national political correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. And as always, thank you listeners for your insights and questions as well. We wouldn't be here without you. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.